Hey, it's Kristen. I'm your host. This is Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland. My guest today is Sharon Myron. Sharon is running for Multnomah County Chair. What does Multnomah County Chair do? We're going to learn about all of that. This is a really important race, and a lot of people see Multnomah County Chair and just tune out and think, I don't really know what that is. I don't know what they do. It looks like it's not something that has to do with the city of Portland, and I'm really upset with the city of Portland. Multnomah County Chair controls the purse strings for the cities within Multnomah County, and it has specific duties in regard to things that directly affect livability in Portland. And it's not just Portland. Remember, this is Multnomah County. So it's everywhere in Multnomah County. If you live in Multnomah County, this is an important interview. You know what? One of the things that they're in charge with is the preschool for all personal income tax. November 3rd, 2020, Multnomah County voters approved a measure to establish tuition-free preschool program. That program is funded by a personal income tax that went into effect January 1st, 2021. And the idea is the preschool for all will give three and four-year-olds in Multnomah County access to free, high-quality, developmentally appropriate, culturally responsive, this is from their website, preschool experiences. The program is funded by a personal income tax of 1.5% on taxable income over $125,000 for individuals and $200,000 for joint filers, and an additional 1.5% of taxable income over $250,000 for individuals and $400,000 for joint filers. That rate is going to increase by 0.8% in 2026. So, even if you're not within those tax brackets, there's a hell of a lot of money coming in to fund those programs. And if you're not seeing preschool programs popping up in Multnomah County and wondering why, you should tune into this interview. I think it's also important to understand just the level of money floating around Multnomah County generally. For example, Multnomah County commissioners approved a record investment in homeless services from a $3.32 billion budget. This is from KGW June 17th, 2022. That was the largest budget in Multnomah County's history that received a final stamp of approval. It's an unprecedented amount of money. It's going to chronic homelessness, behavioral health, and violence. That budget is up 17% 
from last year's. They got new money from the American Rescue Plan, so federal money that they were able to allocate. They're putting $15.5 million towards mental health services, such as behavioral health and transitional housing center opening in downtown Portland this fall. This is from KGW, June 17th, 2022, again. They are putting $1.9 million toward expanding a behavioral health pilot program that provides emergency motel shelter beds and crisis case management. A record $183.2 million is being invested to roll out a countywide response to those experiencing homelessness. And $255.5 million is going directly to the Joint Office of Homeless Services, which Multnomah County partners with the city of Portland on. Almost half of that funding comes from voter-approved Metro-supportive housing services measure from the Joint Office of Housing Services contribution, 130 million is supposed to support more than 2,000 year-round shelter beds and 106 million will go towards placing people in a a permanent housing. KGW asked the joint office, um, which my understanding is operates directly under Multnomah County, and we'll find out more about that from Sharon. KGW asked the Joint Office for more specific accounting of how they'll use those funds. Part of that funding is not just for operation, explained Dennis Thoreau at the JOHS. That is for new shelters, also capital costs. So some of that is building spaces, not just operating the beds that we have. It also shows that shelter is necessary, and we're adding more because we know that there are folks who don't have another place to go. As for staffing those new services and programs, $4.2 million will be set aside for future labor costs affected by inflation and economic uncertainty. The 2023 fiscal year starts July 1. So this is an incredible amount of money, folks. And if you think it doesn't matter who's in charge of that money, I'm telling you right now, it's the Multnomah County chair. Sharon is running for that seat. So if you want a good steward of your dollars, these millions and millions and millions of tax dollars. And if you're looking around right now and you're not seeing things that you like and you know all this money is floating around, this is an interview that you're going to want to pay attention to because this is a race you're going to want to pay very close attention to. Thanks so much. Stay tuned for Sharon Myron. Sharon Myron, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so thrilled that you're here today. It is great to be here. And this is the first time I'm meeting you, but we had this fabulous conversation off the record. And because we have so many friends in common, I (laughs) feel so comfortable with you. And I'm just so excited to sit down and hear about some of your plans for Multnomah County Chair. Now, of course, you're currently a Multnomah County Commissioner. And how long have you been a Multnomah County Commissioner? Uh, Five years. So tell us what is going to change in terms of your duties, information that you may or may not have access to if you become chair? Because I think one of the biggest questions that we're getting is, well, hey, Sharon is already a commissioner, and if she has such great ideas, why aren't I looking around and seeing less homeless people and (laughs) and preschool for all? So what if once you're elected, I'm gonna be positive and say when you are elected, what changes for you in terms of the ideas you have and how whether you can implement these? 
Well, I love that you're starting with this question because that is what everybody should be asking is why does this race matter? Um, and what does the county even do? Because a lot of people just don't even know what the county does. So the county oversees health and human services, and that includes public health, mental health, addictions, homeless services, and the chair is the CEO of the county. So she writes the three and a half billion dollar budget. She hires and oversees all the heads of the departments. She sets the agendas for meetings. She holds the key to accessing data. And basically she sets the vision and direction for the county. As a CEO, that is a lot of power. And you can do some stuff as a commissioner, especially if you're aligned with the chair. But if you want to change the direction and vision for the county, you know, you, you can't do that as an individual commissioner, which is why I am running for chair. I don't think we're going in the right direction. So I, I'm just going to ask a direct question. Do you consider yourself aligned with the chair? No. The okay, so the current chair, of course, is Deborah Kofori. She, she will be termed out. Your opponent is Jessica Vega-Peterson. My understanding is, and obviously you've got some inside baseball here, my understanding <laughs> is that Jessica Vega-Peterson is aligned with the current county chair with Deborah, um, and that their policies are generally pretty similar. That's exactly that's exactly right. Let me let just to go back. I am I am aligned with the general sort of values of of everyone on our board. We have very aligned values right now, which is great. What and are those values that you are aligned with? Compassion. Uh, trying to go upstream and uh, get to root causes of systems issues, um, looking at poverty and trying to do address intergenerational cycles of poverty, um, trying to find solutions to things like, you know, over-representation of people of color in our criminal justice system and find alternatives that are not um, punishment-based, but are much more holistic. So kind of generally, we think alike in a lot of those areas. Uh, but our ways of approaching them <laughs> are, are very different. And so to your question about uh, Jessica Vega-Peterson and her alignment with the chair, they you could literally substitute talking points for each of them and they they would be the same and and they are just that talking points but if you go even scratch the surface um, they don't go deeper and uh, there there's nothing that Commissioner Vega Peterson has not aligned with the chair on I, on the other hand, <laughs> have been outspoken about uh, a number of the things that I, I disagree with. So one of the questions I received, actually, I received many questions along the, this line when people learned that you were coming on. The, a big question people have is, what is the difference between you and Jessica Vega-Peterson? I understand that 
she uh, could probably just substitute in for Deborah Kavori, mm -hmm. it sounds like, and things would continue along status quo lines. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe you could expound a little bit more on what you see as being the biggest differences between yeah. you and your opponents. So we have some kind of idea of if we vote for one or the other, what we're going to get. That is the other key question. So the first is, why does this race matter? And then why does it make a difference who I vote for? So, um, you know, I ran, I ran for the seat because the work of the county, which I talked about, is my life's work and passion. So I'm an ER doctor. Um, I was a lawyer. I did children's advocacy work. I um, currently volunteer doing street medicine. And that's why I ran office in the first place. I have not been a politician before. I am not a career politician. I'm not using this as a stepping stone to another office. And uh, I base my, my policy choices, sort of how I think about things, on my experience working on the front line and bringing that perspective to politics. Um, I think that with my opponent that could maybe just frame it as it's approaching it the other way. It's bringing politics to the world of, you know, of the, the core work of the county. And so our background and experiences are different. She's been a politician for, you know, 12 plus years. Um, and I, and, and it's kind of a career for her. Um, I believe we need to challenge the status quo and need to look at data. She has policies that go along with business as usual. And everything I've done at the county has been along the lines of the core work of the county. Health, human services for people who are the most vulnerable. And it's based on my experience and expertise and background. She has addressed, you know, I, I'm not sure what in the core work of the county she's been interested in, but she's done some work on bridges, which is a kind of peripheral thing that we do, uh, and is working on some, you know, uh, environmental issues that I've been working on climate justice as well. But that's, again, not the core work of the county. The one thing that she touts as an accomplishment is preschool for all, which creates a, this isn't the core work of the county, it's education, and it creates an entirely new bureaucracy and department at the county. Um, and to date, I wouldn't say that it has been what I would call a success. So I would not call this even an accomplishment. We can talk, we can, I'd love to get into something. No, keep yeah. going, because I, I got a yeah. lot of questions about this. Yeah preschool for all tax um, and and I think people are looking around I think even people who aren't paying the tax who aren't the it's a quote-unquote rich tax tax yeah. although you know um, people making that amount I think it's a they cut off it's is, not an enormous amount no I think it's, it's no I mean to, to a lot of Oregonians it is and I completely understand that but it's not yeah a million a year it's right. you know a hundred thousand a year two hundred thousand a year i think for couples or for two, people yeah yeah so um why don't we talk about that 
preschool measure and why it is that we're not just seeing everyone enrolled in free preschool in Multnomah County right now. I think we're all cons <laughs> very confused about this. Yeah. Um, so the, the the whole the whole issue of preschool for all um, has been very interesting to watch roll out and universal preschool is a known thing to be a really a really great thing for a community so there's nothing that would argue that that is not good for um, for any community but the investment so far has been about 105 million dollars and um and 687 kids are entering have entered school this fall maybe i don't even know if that's correct but that and why don't you have that data as a sitting commissioner is that because the chair has that data and you don't have access to that this one is because I think it's happening, I mean, honestly, for this one, I think it's happening in real time. And so they intended, they expected 687 kids to enter school. And I just don't know what the up-to-date number of those who Got it. actually entered is. Um, but that that does end up being $152,000 per kid. And I, I don't consider that success. And so... There, I understand that you need to ramp up programs, you need to build capacity, et cetera, and the idea is that over 10 years, you know, in, 19, in 2033, um, it will be a universal pre preschool program, truly. But Yeah, but how many dollars do we have to amass <laughs> to get there? Uh, a lot of dollars, and I don't even know if all of our money has been expended this year and let's hope not yeah <laughs> given the amount that given the you're amount. saying is enrolled but i but that's exactly that's exactly it it's about accounting for the money that we have and what we're spending being very clear on the data and who and transparent about it on a dashboard with kids and how much we're spending on that and you know i think Universal preschool is great. I probably wouldn't have wanted it to be at the county, but you know, the voters. Right. I mean, I did. think it should be federal, but sure, should whatever. Be federal. It could be state education. It could be all kinds of things. But given what it is, um, the jury's out. Like it's, you can't take credit for a program when we have no idea what um, what the outcomes are going to be. And so far, like right now, if you just look at it, it doesn't look like success. So if you're chair, what do you do to remedy this? For me, and this is a bigger issue, it's, it's all about accountability. Um, it's about shedding a light on where we are spending our resources. It's follow the money. <laughs> and right now, we are not doing that effectively at all in most of what we do at the county, frankly. Um, and that is a huge priority for me to change our systems of accountability so we have that information. So when you're chair, am I, as a constituent, as a voter, as a taxpayer, am I gonna be able to, like, let's say, pull up a website, find the preschool for all tab, take a look at how much of my tax dollars you've amassed, 
figure out where that's going and then figure out how many kids are actually enrolled? Is that the kind of thing that you're interested in doing? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because we don't have any, I mean, in the state of Oregon, we don't have any of that information about anything. (laughs) It is shocking. I mean, I'm... It's shocking that we've allowed this to continue for this long. This should not be allowed. Nope. So what's amazing to me is that you're the only one that I've heard talking about metrics and data and not just metrics and data uh sunshine is the best disinfectant and the idea that you will make all of this transparent so that anybody can take a look at it and you and i were talking off air about you know how would people find out this information now well somebody does a foia request and it takes you know a year for shane cavanaugh or (laughs) nigel jacquis the two we can count on to do this kind of digging to do that, that is if they get permission to do it because those stories are costly. And then by the time the story gets rolled out, how many other millions of dollars have we spent leaving how many other kids in the lurch? So let's, I'm just taking the preschool program as an example, although Multnomah County does a lot more than that. And we're going to talk about yes. all the other things Multnomah County does. Um, so I love the idea that anybody can just, while they're sitting at home, while they're on their phone watching television with their spouse over a glass of wine at eight o'clock like I like to do or whatever um can just pull the it can just say if somebody says hey where is that money going Mm -hmm. they can just get on their phone and pull it up like a wikipedia entry like oh it looks like uh we spent this much and it's going to these places and we've got this many kids enrolled and huh that's a problem maybe I should send an email and ask about X, Y, or Z, or this looks great, and I'm going to send a note of congratulations to Sharon for uh, (laughs) fixing this program. I mean, I just think that's brilliant. Now, how long do you think it's going to take you? My understanding is you don't have access to a lot of data right now because you're a sitting commissioner and you're not the chair. And unless the chair chooses to share data with you, and my understanding is that the current chair has not shared a fair amount of data with you, unless they share that data with you, you don't have access to that. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. So this is not a website that you could just build today as a commissioner? No, it would take work and it's it's a combination of, of not having access, but does the data, the real data even exist? I mean, I... I look at say our joint office of homeless services website and what they post as quote data is not something that i consider actual reliable data and so it would be both drilling down to say where what is the real data so we can follow it getting what we don't have which i suspect is a lot but Maybe not. You can hope. And as chair, you'll suddenly have access to yes. all this. Yeah, I will direct all of. It, I would direct all of the department heads who would then be required to turn over their, you know, the actual data to me. Right now, they answer to the chair. Okay. Now, if you're chair, uh, do you have the authority to hire and fire these department heads? Yes. So if the department heads are not providing you with data and evidence to back that data up, which I guess would be data, but not just the numbers, like mm-hmm. the actual evidence that supports the numbers yes. so you know there are the right numbers, you have the power to just fire them and hire somebody who will do it. Yes. The, As chair. Yes. 
that you know I I would hope that uh, you know that it that wouldn't need to be done but yeah yes. I just want to make sure that it wouldn't be a system where they're kind of you know I mean our city system is so bizarre and I think a lot of us are just used to uh, finger pointing at city council with well that's their bureau and that's yeah. their bureau and I, I have no jurisdiction over that and I and and I, yes. I want people to understand that Multnomah County totally is very different. very different yep that there actually is a primary leader unlike yes. Mayor Wheeler exactly with no power this is this chair position that you are running for Sharon is the primary leader position it's the opposite of the city in that respect right because because they and and here's the other thing if you wanted to roll out one of these websites right now would you be able to do that as a city commissioner I think the answer is no no because the chair decides right Correct. and the chair allocates the funds so this isn't even something that, see, I think a lot of people think that it works like city council. And I want everybody to understand <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. And that in that sitting there as commissioner, you, Sharon, could not just say, hey, um, y'all, I kind of like to put together this super transparent database with real data. And I'm, I'd like to put a measure up for a vote. That's not how Multnomah County works, right? You no. can say that, but the chair can choose yes. to put that forward or not. Correct. And there is, you know, in theory, um, and I've heard people say this, so just want to address that, is, you know, if you can get two other commissioners, it is majority of the board that makes decisions, say, on the budget and where the money is allocated. Um, and they'll say things like, well, if you, you know, you need to convince two other commissioners. The, the problem there is that the chair is the one, again, holding the information and overseeing the department heads who give the other commissioners information. Right. So this website so it's that a you would theo- game. Exactly. <laughs> this website that you could theoretically put together today would be garbage because it wouldn't you you wouldn't have access to the department heads. Yeah. And and you wouldn't have access to, to verify any of the data that you would potentially put up on a website exactly and I've been trying so hard to verify so much of the data that I see being put out there and I just get crickets or reference back to the same websites that on the county's you know on the county's platform that I am asking about you know I'll ask about hey it looks like on this website this is said that doesn't look correct it's like, well, take a look at our website. That just shows that it's correct. You know? It's, yeah, it's, I know. Don't believe your lying eyes. Believe d- what we tell you. That's, yeah. all, that's all we hear in this county, state, and city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. There's really no data or metrics or accountability floating around anywhere around here. And so I, that would be a breath of fresh air, and I love hearing about that. Um, I think it's important that you kind of lay out for us the myriad things. And and I think it's probably too many to list. We'd probably, frankly, run out of time. But can you just lay out for us what what the most important things are, probably, that Multnomah County is in charge of? Like, for instance, the DA. But a lot of people don't know that. So, yeah, the the DA and the sheriff, for example, they're – they're their own elected officials, so they kind of set their own program. But you give them money, but right? But we give them money. And so that is where working with the DA, the chair, 
works with the DA and works with the sheriff to develop their budgets. And for example, um, DA Schmidt uh, had what I think is a brilliant idea of neighborhood DAs. It expands the number of district attorneys um, and it places them in neighborhoods where people can actually have access and start to form relationships and address some of these like cyclings of, of crime that are happening. And maybe different precincts too. Like maybe it would assist the DA to work better with the police because one of the complaints I hear from PPB listeners is, um, you know, the DA's against us. Like we feel like the DA's yeah. against us. And I think candidly, if you shot them up with truth serum, they'd say, we don't really love him either. So. Yeah. Maybe if we have these neighborhood DAs, the different precincts could form relationships as well. I think that is a, that's a great point. And it's when you start to really drill down to the neighborhood level, like that's where things happen. And it is about the relationships and, um, and being there for people in our community on the ground. Um, and that's, I mean, that's where I come from. So it's that direct front line and so I I know the value of that and um, and so I really support that so but. Multnomah County um, it does uh, DA the sheriff they they're doing this they're they're administering these billions of so, preschool dollars what else so mention that the the county's main functions are at, at in health and human services, sort of a safety net. I consider us the, the heart and soul of local government and the cities like the bricks and mortar and zoning and building. Um, but we are, it's called the local mental health authority or public health authority. We do addictions uh, services, we do homeless services. So when people are worried about homelessness and services and our people getting treatment for their mental health crises, that is not the city. That is the county. And I think we've done for years a very, not we, I'm not gonna say it's me, but the county has done a pretty good job of deflecting and pointing across the river and letting it all be on the, on the city. But it is, it's why we both need to work together on these issues. Most of what we're seeing is actually county function and as we talked about, the chair is the CEO of the county. So a lot of this is directly in the, in the role of chair. And so homeless services, addressing homelessness urgently as a humanitarian and public health crisis is you know, my, my top priority. I also have been uh, a, an advocate, a provider, a champion around mental health and addictions services. I mean, it's long before I ran for office. It's kind of why I ran for office in the first place. It's because our systems are so broken. Um, and so there are a couple of things, major things we can do, both in the short and long term there. And in public safety, again, that's more through adoption of more DAs uh, and working with our sheriff and with the DA to do that work. We also do parole and probation, and we also do um, all of the surrounding services around mental health court and um, substance use disorder. So the county is 
is really inextricably involved and drives all of this core work um, around a lot of the crises we're seeing on our streets right now. What else does Multnomah County oversee that we haven't touched on yet? Because it's just so much, and I think people it, don't understand. I mean, if you if you pull up the Multnomah, if you Google Multnomah County budget, you'll see. I mean, this thing is like a, a no, yes. nobody remembers paper dictionaries anymore. But this thing is like one of those you know fifty pound paper dictionaries. And <laughs> if you take a look through it, your mind's going to be blown if if you see the kind of stuff that Multnomah County's in charge of. Because I think these are the kind of things that people think the city is in charge of. You know, they look yeah. around. And they just blame Mayor Wheeler, and I'm not saying there isn't blame to go around for Mayor Wheeler. There certainly is, but you know, there's. This is a lot of county stuff that we're talking about with this homelessness issue and, and mm. crime, frankly. Yeah, it absolutely. I mean, so much, so much of especially some of the low-level crime connected with homelessness is related to. Um, addictions or mental health issues and uh, we just kind of push that away and say oh crime is the police's job that's the city but no it's our job job it's public health like there is a huge problem with rats that I don't see elevated oh, they're everywhere they're, 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 they're all over everywhere. Old, old town and they're yes. the size of dogs and I <laughs> Um, yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it's, if you, that, that was the last time I went to the Chinese Garden. It was two uh, years ago. I used to go every year. And two years ago, uh, my neighbor and I took our children because we had, I always take my children every year. And down, you know, Old Town uh, has gotten exponentially more difficult to navigate. Yeah. But they, you know, we're all, uh, I'm a third generation native. My children are fourth, so they're we're used to navigating cities and navigating Portland and navigating Old Town, and um, we all even lived downtown for a while at one point. And we've always lived within the city, and now we're we're in uh, Southeast, so we're in, it's not like we're in Wisconsin, the West Hills, or anything. But I, we were um, first of all, we had travel parking because they were all every every it was all up against tents and not just up against like yeah. you couldn't open the door if yeah. the passenger or driver's side was facing the sidewalk you couldn't open the door you'd open it right into a tent so that was an issue then it was so funny because my neighbor said oh look there's a range rover maybe if we park by the range rover um i don't know if that's safe it seems like we could park down there and it didn't look like there were tents and we start driving towards this Range Rover and every single window is blown out. I mean, this person obviously has not returned to their car quite yet, but they're going to be in for quite a surprise. So that may not be good. So we finally find a place to park. It's blocks away. So we're walking blocks throughout, like probably from the beginning of the Pearl into Old Town. And as we're walking in the street, by the way, because in Old Town, you cannot walk I mean, this is before Wheeler started getting rid of these tents. You you couldn't walk on the side. I mean, and I think that's the source of this Americans with Disability Act lawsuit. Yes. Um, you cannot traverse the sidewalks generally in mm -hmm. the city of Portland. You just can't do it. And certainly not in Old Town and certainly not two years ago. And so we're walking in the middle of the darn street with little kids and we're ensconced in these homeless encampments and these rats just start scurrying everywhere. I mean, this was just, this was the beginning of the trip. We hadn't even hit the darn garden. Mm -hmm. um, and 
really, this all should... It, it, when I tell the story, people are like, and you didn't <laughs> turn around and return to your car. Why? I mean, I was just... I think a lot of it is just um, a refusal to give up my city to these livability issues. Um, a ch- just a charge-ahead mentality. A, um, I, and, and then the gaslighting that I hear all the time about how every big city is like this. Yes. Even though we've been to Chicago, we've been to New York, we've been to New Orleans. I mean, they're, frankly, you could lick the pavement compared to what's going on here. I mean, the, the idea that we're a big city and New York is not is idiotic. But I, I think a lot of people... I, th- I think Portland's hermetic and people don't travel out much. But anyway, uh, so I was undeterred and we just keep walking and the kids thought the rats running around were kind of Cute, great. Right? Um, we'll just fasten. Oh my God, he went in our car. Oh my God, he's in a tent. That's weird. Do you think it's oh, their pet? Oh. Or I'm just like, keep walking, keep walking. We get into the garden, we pay an exorbitant fee, which I'm happy to pay because it's arts and culture. And then um, the smell of urine. See, the other thing is the tents were all along this poor Chinese garden. And so there are people urinating, cooking fentanyl pills and heroin and cookers. And there's lattice. It's all open. It's This is not an interior garden. This isn't the Bellagio uh, garden or something. It's This is not inside. It's outside. And, and the lattice is short. So it's concrete lattice. And I'm not a large person. I'm rather I'm kind of a dwarf, and even even my head, as it swivels, is watching all this go on. You know, people pooping and and I, it's it, in in the midst of mental health crises, screaming, fighting. This is in the middle of the day, so you can't even enjoy the garden. And and at the same time, it's very stressful because you're thinking. These people are living like this, and we live in the United States, ostensibly the richest country in the world, and we're the most progressive city in the world. We make news for our progress every day. We are seen as the most left-leaning city in the world, and why are people living like this on our streets if we are so progressive and if we care so much? It's just bizarre i mean just the confluence of all of these thoughts swirling around with the smells and the it's just overwhelming and then the tea garden was open and that's obviously that's all the kids want to do so we go to the tea garden and they get treats and by now my neighbor was just sort of like i'm not hungry i'm not doing any of this and at one point one of the kids is sitting these tables that they have set up by the tea garden and we're just kind of waiting for them to hurry up so we can get out of there and traverse, of course, back to our car through the rats and the encampments. And um, one of the, I think it was probably one of mine, one of the kids says, oh, wow, look, um, there's a dead rat and a dead squirrel. And and they were, and, and they were pointing like right next to us, like right next to where we're eating. Um, like you could touch it so close. And I didn't look at it, and I just said, like any um, mother, my instinct was to say, I bet they're just sleeping. (laughs) They were old enough to, um, to say, Mom, I want you to turn around and look at this. They're gassed up. Oh, oh, oh. Fully gassed up rat and squirrel completely dead decomposing that we could have touched 
ne right next to where they're eating and drinking at the tea garden. And I just, I, and I don't even remember what it cost to get in like 30 bucks a piece or something, but I just remember standing up and going, okay, that's it, we're done. And you know, the whole thing is surrounded by now, the whole darn thing is surround, well, I gotta finish this up because, okay, we do traverse back through the rats, the car's intact, we get in the car, and immediately, the minute we get into the car, and of course I lock the doors, somebody going through a, a drug-induced psychosis or mental health crisis comes running up to the car, smashes their face against it. Mm -hmm. So I'm nervous about starting it and going because I don't want to kill or hit this person. Um, and they finally back away enough for me to do that. But anyway, we got out of there. But I, um, you know, now this poor Chinese garden, Steve Dine, I think is his name, did an article about it in the Oregonian and Dean. just, yeah. Dean, thank you, did an article about it in the Oregonian um, that we'll note in the show notes. And this thing is now surrounded, this poor Chinese garden, which was is a cultural treasure yes. in Portland, Oregon. Yes. In Chinatown is surrounded by concertina wire it looks like bosnia or something uh during the the bosnian crisis and um and that's where we're at now with that kind of thing and so what i'm one of the things that i'm interested in sharon is what can you're a doctor you're an md you were a lawyer for seven years and i really i want to get into your background because it's fascinating but one thing that i'm interested in hearing about and I don't know if you know my story, but my dad died homeless. He was mentally ill. My mm. sister is homeless. That's an opioid issue. Um, she's still, I think, around. I don't know. I think she is. Kevin is actually has volunteered to help find her. God bless him. Kevin Dahlgren, who's a mutual friend of ours, Sharon. Um, so what I'm interested in is one of the things that I had a lot of difficulty with was trying to get compel my dad to go into mental health treatment. And he didn't have schizophrenia, but he did have super severe bipolar disorder. And as you probably know, it, it I mean, Kanye can tell you this, it doesn't feel good to be on the meds because it feels really good when you're manic. It just feels good and you feel dulled when you're on the medication. And I think for creative, my dad was not a creative type, but I think especially for people like maybe Kanye, um, if you're a creative type, you really don't want to be on the meds because that uh, will impede the things that you love to do most. My dad didn't have that, but he just didn't want to take them. And you can't make him take them. So he promptly, after my mother died, who was codependent, sort of feeding him his medication, lost the house, lost his job, uh, like ended up traversing the country with my, following my ne'er-do-well sister around and ended up dying um and i i uh and it wasn't because of i mean i he had a stroke it wasn't he wow. may or may not have been homeless related but the point is boy i mean what can we do about this libertarian nature of these laws surrounding mental illness because i was able to get him committed now this was up in washington but oregon's similar oregon's similar uh, this was up in Washington. I was able to get him committed for one day because he said he wanted to kill himself. Then they let him out the next day because he said he didn't want to anymore. And then I couldn't get him back in because I couldn't get him to say he wanted to kill himself ever again. So that was that. Um, and there was no good like guardianship or conservatorship process or certainly not one that was easy for me to navigate as a, I was a law student at the time. And, um, or for somebody who's, you know, working a job and just doesn't, which I was working free and going to law school. I mean, it's just not something you can, 
a civilian can take on. And um, I just wonder, I know Oregon's approach to this is also very libertarian. And then I also know that there's this other wrench thrown into this by the ACLU, who's, I think, would probably come after us if we were interested in um, trying to compel treatment for some of these people. But my goodness, I certainly would have rather have seen him. I mean, I understand that the state hospitals are scary and they're decrepit and there's a reason we shut them down, but I, I'm envisioning like a hospice style situation or a Bybee Lake situation, which if you've been there, you know it's a beautiful, homey, fabulous place full of joy, full of care and caring people who work there. And, and wouldn't it be wonderful, like I interviewed this woman, Terry, I'm talking too much, but I interviewed this woman, Terry Anderson, whose son was schizophrenic and she couldn't get him committed anywhere and he died of a fentanyl overdose under the Burnside Bridge. Now, fentanyl wasn't his main issue, it was schizophrenia, but once he was out on the streets, okay. now he's on drugs, now he's schizophrenic, it's only a matter of time, uh, dies of a fentanyl overdose under the Burnside Bridge. If Terry and I were commiserating about how, oh my goodness, what if there was some mechanism to get our loved ones some kind of compelled treatment? And I don't know, Sharon, can we, are you, a, are you, a, maybe you're against this. Maybe no, you're like, no, 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 that's their liberty. I don't know, but I'm interested in your thoughts on, on this because I have so many friends who are grappling yes. with the same kind of stuff with family members. Yes. Oh my, oh my gosh. There's, there's just so much there. Um, and I, I too have a lot of friends um, that grapple with this with close family members. And I think about this a lot as a doctor because in the ER, people will come in very, very, they will be psychotic, they will be agitated, and people can refuse care, um, you know, for, for anything but mental illness. People, we can compel people to have treatment if they don't understand the risks, benefits, and alternatives of treatment. You know, they, if they have the capacity to understand what's happening, they can refuse treatment. Um, but if they don't, we can treat them for a heart attack or whatever. The same is not true for mental illness. People come in and, and it's basically in the ER, the standard is if there's an emergency medical condition, it needs to be stabilized and then um, the person can, can leave. And uh, for a lot of people, this is their stable condition. Like, this is not a new acute emergency. And we cannot hold people against their will. And I personally believe, you know, the standard in Oregon, I mean, as, as other things in Oregon, as we've mentioned, the standard here in Oregon is, you know, one of the most uh, liberal or depending how you look at it, restrictive. I think it's libertarian. It's, it's a, I think about libertarian is like if you're not harming someone else, that you can do whatever, but this is harming Okay, no, you're right. Rights are in you know? conflict. They're, they're in conflict, exactly. Yeah, you're right. And, Rights are in conflict. And so we have the highest restriction. As an ER doctor, um, I have to, someone has to be, the language is um, in imminent danger of harming themselves or others. Imminent has been interpreted to mean immediately by the courts here. And so I let people who I know are going to be harmed, do harm, but not imminently, we have to let them 
go. And I believe there needs to be a lower bar to compel treatment to avoid harm, um, to avoid more restrictive situations such as jail or the Oregon State Hospital or more dangerous outcomes such as harming oneself, killing others. But, but couldn't we theoretically do an Oregon State Hospital that looks, like I said, more like a hospice center or right. a Ivy Lake Center or something fabulous that pe- that parents and loved ones feel thrilled about bringing their mentally ill loved ones to? What was... Well, like just someone? not, like, when you say, when I say Oregon State Hospital, it sounds horrible oh, and yeah, scary yeah, yeah. and awful. But I, I feel like if we could revamp that well, facility... The Oregon State Hospital is actually quite amazing. They did a huge effort to revamp it. Um, and there are incredible programs. There are beautiful services. There's like a whole, you know, um, what's the word? You know, a kitchen for a commercial kitchen that you think people learn how to do different oh, skills. Well, that's, I, see, it's I it's really no awesome. And everybody vilifies it. Well, the problem is... It's fifteen hundred or more dollars per day for people to be here, which is an unbelievable amount of money. And but look at the money that we're spending on crime and trash. So and what I would say is, the programs we need to do are the same sorts of programs as at the state hospital. If we do them in the county locally, they're two hundred dollars a day or less. So, so could you do a county hospital? You could do, there's all kinds of federal But then you laws. still can't compel them because of the way the laws are set up. So to is get that a legislature still, thing? So this one for that kind of compulsion is a state legislative issue. And I've been working on this for God bless you. years and years. Um, there may be a shift, like the critical mass is now starting to shift in favor because people are like, this is realize this is not compassionate this is actually more restrictive and damaging there's a court case that actually just came down that is going to um it is a disaster what's that called um, it's called the mossman decision m-o-s-m-a-n i don't want to get too into the weeds okay. but as a lawyer as a fellow lawyer i know yeah. you would be, but this is usually the standard so for being in the state us. hospital for people who are there because they've committed crimes but can't understand the court proceedings enough to aid in their own defense. Right, right. They go down there. They're often there for a long time because they can't be compelled to take medications or do these things. And they can be there for a very long time, which is damaging and really expensive and not helping them. But the Mossman decision that came out, I think, last week, says we're going to put an artificial time limit on how long people can be in the state hospital for aid and assist. So if they've been there for 30 days for a misdemeanor, and I, or maybe it's 90 days, a short period of time for a misdemeanor and six months for a felony, um, they have to be let out. They have to be some kind of decarceration ideology the, thing? It, the con, it, conceptually, it's based on you know, you're holding these people in this place and you're not getting them better. They don't deserve to be restricted in that way, which I, I kind of agree with that general concept. But yeah, the but answer isn't, isn't just to let them out. Well, not felons. I mean, it, here's the other thing. If, if as, a, as the daughter of, of a very mentally ill person, Sharon, and you're an yeah. MD, okay? Yeah. 
shouldn't they listen to the doctors? I mean, if the doctors are saying, yeah. this person is not well yet, yeah. I'm sorry. Like, it's not, in schizophrenia, sometimes they never get well. Like, you right. can give them all the meds you want. I, you let them out, they're not going to take them anymore. Right. Period. Period. Well, one thing, so, no, the system is, is so broken and, you know, and there's been just true incompetence at the state level in behavioral health um, in the Oregon Health Authority, but that's a whole other subject. But so if California, were, oh, sorry, go ahead. great California approach, it was proposed by Governor Gavin Newsom, and then it was voted, um, it was supported in end of August by virtually unanimously by both the Democrats and Republicans in the House and Senate, so it's passed legislation in California. It's called Care Court. Oh, I've heard about this. Yes. Okay, this is this is a really great, interesting approach for people who um, have serious mental illness um, with, with schizophrenia that. Um, they are potentially going to be dangerous to themselves or others and it is intervening before that can happen so that they don't have to go into this much more restrictive level of care but it provides really intense wraparound services supports housing to but they're, they're required to do it um and is, anyway is this something so, something many people may not know is uh, y'all at Multnomah County are also in charge of the court system in yeah. the Multnomah County. So, Multnomah County Circuit Court, that's you all. Um, I'm interested in hearing whether, is this something, the gov this care court program, is that something the government has to do or is that something that you could theoretically put together since you're in charge of the state court system anyway? Can you incorporate that kind of like drug court, right? Can you, we don't have that anymore thanks to 110, but could you incorporate some kind of a care court? So what I think about, and, and in terms of the funding, I, I, I'd have to double check funding for the judicial system because it might be just passed through funding from the state. And oh, I see. But so you may not be in charge of the funding for the judicial system. Um, there are elements through discretionary funding for sure, and our general our general fund, we can do whatever we want. And I work very closely with the mental health court judge, who's amazing, Nan Waller. And yes, yes, she's great. And, uh, I mean, we talk about these issues all the time. because oh, you both see it. We both see it on the front line, and we both watch our systems fail to do anything about it. And this is something that I believe we could potentially do a pilot-type project. I mean, in California, they adopted it at the state level, and then they're supporting, like, eight counties to pilot it. But because our state... Is so dysfunctional, maybe. Yeah. Let's <laughs> we, say Tina Kotek gets elected. That's not gonna. I mean, I know I'm a Democrat. You're a Democrat. You don't have to, to say anything it. about yeah. Tina, but it, I, I'll just tell yeah. you, if she's elected, that ain't gonna happen. So I guess the question is, at the we county just need level, to do it. Yeah. I see so much. That's the other thing. I love that idea. Yeah, I love. I I love it, and we. See, I see us again. The the excuses that I've seen made at the county. It's like. 
you hear, I think all of us have heard that, oh, it took decades to get into this houseless problem. You know, we can't expect change overnight or, oh, that's the state has to do that. And it's like, okay, maybe all of these things are true, but that does not alleviate our responsibility to act now for the emergencies and crises that are on our front door. And, and do you feel like, okay, here's a question. Day one, you're in office. What's the first thing that you do? Like, what do you see as the most urgent thing? Because there are so many darn urgent things here. It's overwhelming. That, that is a great question because there are so many urgent things. Um, I would start by getting the sort of crisis strike team together that would address the, the homeless crisis on our streets in a, in a real way, um, working with the city to like break down barriers and, and get things done. Right now we have meetings every month or every quarter and spend half of them introducing people to each other when we already know each other. Um, I would just be like, this is your job to every, all day, every day to focus on with decision makers on these teams that can break through the, the bureaucracy that can identify places people can go. It's sort of a, you know, and I think Kevin, Kevin Dahlgren is a doer in this respect. He is a doer. And it's, it's like we just need to, to coin a phrase, um, we just need to do it. Um, and so that would be one of the first things that I would do. Um, I would also hire the um, consultant that would uh, really delve into the Joint Office of Homeless Services and um, shine a light in the Joint Office. We need to understand what is going on there or else we're never going to get anything done. So is that the same kind of thing that we we're talking about with like you could just pull up a website and you can see where all your tax dollars in Multnomah County are going and mm -hmm. you're saying that would include the joint office like how much money is flowing into there and how many people have we housed and how many people have we helped and how many people have we gotten into addiction services like we could see all that? Yes. And right now they would say well we, we say how many people we've housed. We yeah, but we know that's but, not true because there, there's audits all the time and they yeah. always say it's wrong. Yeah, and when you ask the next question, which is really relevant, is, well, where did they come from? So are these people that were living on the street that now they're housed and they've been sustained in sustained housing for a year or more? It's like I ask that question and I get the answer, oh, we don't know that. We don't collect that information. That isn't something that we really follow. But if we're not understanding the whole, the whole continuum and what is happening and where people are coming from and going to, then, then these random numbers, I mean, they are just random numbers. They don't mean anything without context and without you know, following the money, showing that this is what our money has bought for us. And you're telling us that if you're elected, 
this is the kind of data and metrics that you will yes. gather and publish <laughs> and put sunlight on so that we can all see what's going on. And then what if you, okay, here's a question, like what if you see that something isn't working? Like what if you see that some, you know, some fly-by-night nonprofit is, has housed two people with, you know, $700,000, yes. yes. what do you do? Then you will stop it. Um, it is something, you know, I, I think that too often uh, we do, there are some amazing nonprofits that just are kind of thrown to the wolves and aren't given any assistance by the county and expected to do all this work when they, when they haven't gotten the assistance in knowing how to do it. So we need to help. We need to be able to say to people, here's what we expect of you. Here's the contract. Here's what we're buying. And if and then assess that regularly. <laughs> and if they're not meeting goals, then have, okay, here's the corrective action plan. We'll help you with this. But then if it's still not working, it's like, this is not working. You're not meeting the outcomes that you said you would in your contract. We're not continuing. Is that happening on any level currently? First of all, it's hard to get information about contracting at all. Because and so that's, that's something, something the chair would have. I, I honestly, if we, if we have the information, the chair could access it. I honestly don't think we track contracting information effectively. We don't have a centralized place where we standardize how we... Um, so we don't even know. Contract. We don't even know. We're just throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars at these people and we're not even tracking that? Theoretically, so I, and I, I, theoretically what happens is each department has its own approach to doing their contracting. So theoretically, like the same organization or nonprofit could be contracting with multiple departments at the county with multiple different versions of a contract having similar outcomes or similar things they're doing, but the organization has four different contracts to do that kind of work. And each department administers and oversees its own contracts in their own way. And they set outcomes in their own way, and they have people looking at them who have, you know, totally variable levels of training. And so there's there is no consistency. There's, you're, I, I'm you sitting with you, so you're, you're like just. Oh, I'm blink. I'm, I'm closing <laughs> my eyes and I'm rubbing my forehead. Yeah. What What can it's you what do, do about that as chair? Um, you can. You can change the system of how we do contracts at the county. That would be. I already have. You know, I did get passed in our budget. Um, a plan or, or a person who's going to come in and examine our contracting system and make recommendations how it can be, you know, best practice, up-to-date system. But what drove that is a, an audit from 2009 where the auditor said, looked at large contracts, and that's how we provide services. We, we give money mostly to organizations that administer the services. So they looked at these large contracts. Anyone could could look this up on the county's website and the audits and said, oh my gosh, you are not administering 
contracts right. This is very concerning. You need to do something differently. There were some efforts made in 2009, a proposed approach. Um, people were dedicated, and then it just didn't happen. And it was reevaluated right before I came to the county. Uh, and the auditor said, I'm going to look at this again. Oh, nothing has changed. The chair and the chief operating officer are the ones who would need to make this happen at the county. Who's the chief operating? How does the chief operating officer relate to the chair? Can the chair fire or hire that person? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so the, the chief operating officer, uh, you know, can sort of over, sort of oversees different functions um, like operations, human resources, that kind of thing at the county. But they, but they are answerable to to the chair. So, it's um, you know that's kind of a partnership. But it's not like a city man. You know, it's not. It's different from a city manager or something like that. But this is fascinating. The chair is really like the president. Yes. But unchecked yes. by a Congress or yes. a judiciary. That Imagine a, if Trump was the Multnomah County chair and just wrap your mind around that, then the damage that could be done. I mean, I, I think I don't think anybody realizes the amount of executive power, unchecked executive power that the Multnomah County chair has. And so we need to be thinking, exactly. everybody who's listening to this right now, you need to be thinking real carefully about this election and you better vote because you just heard about all the stuff they're in charge of and the billions of dollars that are flowing in and out of here. Um, you know, if you want things to stay the same and you just want the money to flow in and out and uh, stumble across rats and walk through uh, the street because you can't get past the homeless encampments and let these people rot in the gutters, then sure, I guess go ahead and vote for Jessica Vega Peterson. But he, the thing is, Sharon has this very clear sense of what can be done and not done um, and what's within the Multnomah County Chair's power, and it's so much... It's so much. So Sharon, this is a lot of stuff. Like how, uh, I mean, realistically, what can we accomplish here? Let's, you're elected. Yep. What is your biggest priority in terms of accomplishment in the, forget the first day, um, yeah. in the first year? Like, what do you want to see? I did that. Like, and it could just yeah. be one thing. I would like to see a measurable decrease in the number of people living outside on our streets. And it can be done. How do we do that? So it is um, through sanctioned camping, uh, which is a way that I, I have I do have problems. Um, it's not even a it's not a Boise decision thing. It's just a more of a humanitarian thing of sweeping people when there's nowhere for them to go. And right now... Yeah, I do too. They just, we, they they just, just move two blocks away anyway. Rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Exactly. <laughs> for a lot of money. Um, but there are some really straightforward things that we can do to give people places they can go that they actually want to go that are safer, cheaper, healthier than what we are doing now. And so if we set the places where people can go, whether they're... You know, and it would need to be a combination. Tiny sites, and I've referenced, you can go to my website for the tiny, like, 
almost like give us your website address www.votesharon.com okay and um tiny larger but when you're telling people where they can't go we are also telling them where we can go and we are giving them the choice of where they go so you say you cannot be here on this sidewalk but here's where you can go it safe rest village for example you know, i think there's one of them now but um whatever uh sanctioned campsites other kind of village motel shelter indoor shelter all of these options we will help you get there with your stuff with your pets etc but you cannot be here and then we get people to these sites and then what that do does is not only gets them in a place that's safer and healthier not only gets them off our off the street so that our communities are safer and healthier it also brings order to chaos like it then gets people in places where outreach workers who nowadays it, you can't find anyone anywhere we can put a zillion outreach workers on there but it's so chaotic it doesn't work now we have almost imagine a grid system especially if we have data we can have outreach workers regularly go to the places where they know people are to get them the supports they need the services they need to get them prepared so when we have housing they can actually move into housing um say so get behavioral health so whatever it is they need and it's that common like this is all complementary and i i just don't understand why we're not we're not doing it but um, as chair, we would. <laughs> what What if they don't want to go to the sanctioned camp? So the thing, the thing is, people will have to. If there are places for them to go, then they they will have to go to one of them. And if they say they won't, then say, well, we're going to take you to one, and it would be uh, that would be enforced. But they can leave at any time. They can leave, but then if they're somewhere they're not supposed to be, they'll be moved again. And the the thing about it is, I mean, the, the reality is that, and I've talked to hundreds of people doing Portland street medicine, like we have actual conversations and the vast, vast majority, whether what they use drugs, if they have mental illness, like whatever it is, they, they just say, Hey, you know, they're posting the sweep thing. I don't, I don't want to be here pooping on the doorstep, but just tell me where I can be. And the vast majority of people would would go. And and so we would be left with a very small group, which is a very different issue, I think, when you're looking at people who are just saying, no, I'm going to stay here, that we would need to address in a different way. Who picks them up? Does the county pick them up if, if they keep returning to... Burnside Bridge or whatever the county, yeah. the county's got a van they just keep picking them up that's what I would envision working the an actual joint office of homeless services could do that it would be the city and county and, and you may both. have to forcibly physically remove these people not any more than we already I mean we, we sweep people already like they're not not we the, the city does sweep yes yeah, they do and people leave like they're there are not, people aren't just sitting there and... Um. Well, they are at Outside In because there's mm -hmm. these houseless advocates. 
an Antifa or Antifa adjacent kind of yeah activists who will surround them and they'll stop a sweep from happening. And I, how do you yeah. get around that? So part of the and and the thing is again, this is where my frontline experience actually makes a difference because I'm I'm not just sitting there making stuff up and saying you have to do this for you know just because I work with these people on the ground and I know them and I three a lot of the reason they're doing what they do is because we're not you know what I've seen is some of the efforts are not treating people with compassion who are living outside and they're not providing options for where they can go I think if we were just having the conversation and engaging and communicating and be like, listen, they can't be here. Here's where, here's these options. Help us figure out where, where people can go. They would be into that. Like it's a different, I think right now things are so divisive and confrontational and there's been so much antagonism that a lot of those bridges cannot be crossed. I'm a person just because of my my random experience doing a lot of this work um, at all levels, I can actually cross some of those bridges. And I think that makes a difference as well. So TJ Browning, who's head of public safety for Laurelhurst Neighborhood says that the stop the sweeps people who were the ones basically keeping all those homeless camps where they are, the people driving in from Beaverton basically during the day and handing out tents and whatever, and, and um, sometimes they walk around with guns. Yeah. These people, um, you know, they're they're not, some of them are armed, so that makes it a little dangerous, but she said according to the, the Stop the Sweeps people she is dealing with, yeah. they're insisting that these homeless people go to a house or an unsanctioned camp. See, TJ's would like to see sanction camps as well. And the she's talked to tons of homeless people. She does every day. She lives in Laurelhurst. So yeah. according to her, they're happy to go to sanction camps. Um, how do we prevent one of these outside-in kind of things that went on the other day where we've got these people maybe possibly armed uh, I mean, they were literally preventing the sweeps. Like, the sweeps were not happening. And right. you're not doing a sweep. You're putting them right. in a sanctioned camp. But I, I don't know you're going to get buy-off from these people if they want you putting them in a house or an unsanctioned camp. I don't know you're, you're well, going to get that. I think it's a question of, I mean, uh, some of it's that there isn't a house because there isn't a house. There are, is not housing. I don't know where, right. where you'd begin. <laughs> but exactly. Yeah. But you begin in this in a camp and I think it's a definition of sanctioned and unsanctioned and the thing is for me whatever the if we have a say rustic campsite that has a toilet it has um, shower and laundry truck it has trash pickup basic hygiene stuff and some structures where people can be lock their doors whatever Ten of them say in a in a place that's not on a street that's a, that that is where people would that's where they want to be and I, but, I, I mean do you care think what you, you call you're going to be able to get past this yeah. houseless advocate narrative of the house or the unsanctioned camps or or nothing call you, it an unsanctioned I mean I I don't really care if we call them sanctioned camps or unsanctioned what I mean by sanctioned is 
we're just city funded, creating county funded, so county that people funded. can be there. County created, county yeah. funded. Now, um, so you mentioned safe rest villages. You know, I, yes, those are very controversial. Yes, and one of the issues with those, of course, was that. Um, you know, Sam Adams in that call with all the uh, managing partners of the law firms telling them he's going to put all the homeless people in their neighborhoods so that their employees can come back to work. And then he needed to buy off from them to do it because, of course, all the people in the neighborhoods were going to lose their shit, which, of course, they all did. Um, and now he's got one, he's, Dan's got one he's trying to put next to a school, but he doesn't want to scream for felons or sex offenders. He How, will. Oh, that's an interesting. Did he did he just agree to do that? That's actually been for quite a while, and that's another area where, um, if it's the one by the international school or if it's a different. He did one. agree yeah. to do that. Yeah. Okay, this is breaking. No one's reporting on this. So. Okay, so breaking. Dan Ryan has agreed to screen for felons and sex offenders at the Safe Rest Village next to school. You're saying you, you know that. I, I know this and um, because I support that as well and I've talked to the you know all a lot of the folks at the at the international That's, school well, and they're and for the it as long as they get right. that they have been amazing they're asking for a very very targeted reasonable solution it's stupid to, they've uh, had to fight it in, so in but you know where the, the the reason it it's not being done is the county chair that's where the decision is made about this. So the thing that is preventing it, because it's about services in the Safe Rest Village, not the you know the structure itself. So, so Dan has agreed to do it, yep. but it's not being done because the county chair is not doing Correct. it. And Sharon, you're saying if you're county chair, you will do that. You will screen for. So if if we what about just a neighborhood generally, right? These are filled with kids. Um, we've got a safe rest village in a neighborhood. Can will you screen for sex offenders and felons? I think for you know there are things on the books for um, sex offenders and some dangerous felons around you know um, proximity to schools that exist. There are period, and so I think that is legitimate, and that if we are you know. If there's that proximity to that concentration. But what about just neighborhoods, right? Because you can understand yeah. why families are nervous about sex offenders and I felons think, living next to them. I think that the that one I'd have to look at because the concern, what I really appreciate about the International School's proposal is a narrowly tailored response to a very specific concern. And... Um, that for me weighs in favor of doing the background checks. If it's like there are reasons that even for other dwellings and areas that aren't around schools that it, I would have to think about it honestly um, because there are why put them in neighborhoods mm -hmm. at all? Like I don't, I, I just don't understand that. <laughs> I don't understand that. Why would you do that? Why, why, why does Dan? I get it. You know, they want employees to come back to work. Okay, they want to take them out of downtown, and put them in the neighborhoods. Wapato mm -hmm. is not in a neighborhood. Yeah, it's a fabulous place. It doesn't house felons or sex offenders because it houses kids. But yeah. don't we have places that we could put some of these people um, that are not smack dab in the middle of? A neighborhood filled with 
three-year-olds and and ten-year-olds and what have you? Well, the thing, the thing about locating these things and in terms of the locations again, I don't have that's Dan Ryan and the city and their you know where they figured they would put these places. But I mean, in terms of your plan, which yeah. is like ha- yeah, yeah, yeah. Hamlets, am I saying yeah. that right? Yeah. So, like, forget Dan's safe rest stuff. Like, forget yeah. that city idea. But if your is Sharon as Multnomah County chair is going to, I mean, my understanding is you can also do your own plan to put people in various places, right? I mean, you could create your Hamlets that, is, that you were yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about. I mean, that's, yeah. And where you're saying they could go various places, but you actually don't know where they could go because the chair holds the keys to that information and right. you don't have access to it. And so that's, you know, that's really not something we, a road we can go down until you have that data. And so that's part of why you need access to all this stuff and why this race is so darn important, folks, because we got to elect somebody who, who, can, who can be a good steward of this data and share it. And, you know, just sort of getting to, you know, the back a little bit to your question about safe rest villages or you know, wherever they may be located, regardless of if they're near st- schools, et cetera. Um, my, uh, I don't know where my opponent in this race stands, but um, given the alignment with the chair in most of everything else that they, they work on, I can't imagine that she would support even the narrowly tailored option. Oh, I'm sure she yeah. would. So, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for her, so you can ask her. But someone yeah, could we can or debate should. about whether but, or not that's yep. true. But I, I'm, I think yeah. it's a safe. I believe uh, my opinion is it's a yep. safe assumption <laughs> that she won't be touching that, and that that if it were up to her, they'd. I mean, I'm sure they wouldn't go in her yard, but they might go in yours. <laughs> So um, the, the other question I have about this is, let's talk about the joint office for a minute, because you hear, yes. you, you brought up a good point when we were off air. You said the joint, people assume that the joint office of homeless services is a partnership between the city and the county, but really the county has all the power and the city just gives the county money. <laughs> yes, this was a really, really good deal for the county and I, I don't know how the specifics ended up happening. The Joint Office of Homeless Services is a county department. The department head of the Joint Office of Homeless Services had been Mark Jolin, now is Shannon Singleton, is hired by the county chair. And so that is, um, you know, that's the dynamic. In the agreement, there's contract between the city and county where they agreed to come together but what it ends up being is the power resides in the county and then the city gives a bunch of money and in the best situations and Dan Ryan has actually fought for fought for this um, the city can be involved to some degree in decision making to whatever extent the chair lets that happen but it is a county department, and and that is that is huge. It is not truly a joint office in my mind, and that contract is up for renegotiation next year. The current chair, 
or the <laughs> the future chair will have all of the the power to be negotiating that contract on behalf of the county and i would work closely with our city commissioners to ensure that it when we say joint office we actually mean joint office right and i was off air i was saying well i don't really want Dan involved in any of that kind of stuff. I'd rather have you just do it. But you made a really good point, which is, no, 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 no. Like, part of the reason everybody's so um, incensed about these three layers of government, the county, the city, metro, is because none of them work together. Yeah. And you're exactly right. And they, they need to be aligned. Exactly. And so you're saying you've already begun talks with... Yes people like Dan Ryan about how you can align and get in sync about some of this stuff and you're not all just running around like chickens with your heads cut off with billions of dollars exactly which is so I mean it's just so important and that is not currently happening they they are not aligned I would not I mean that you'd have to ask Dan Ryan and Deborah Kafori and see again again everybody listen to that Sharon Myron, a sitting commissioner, doesn't even know the answer to that question because she doesn't have access to the information. That's how powerful the Multnomah County chair is and why this race is so darn important. So let's talk about Built for Zero because we had a lot of questions about that and people want to know what it is and how it works. So Built for Zero is if done right is fabulous it is a proven data-driven and person-centered strategy to end homelessness it is proposed by a national organization the called community solutions and has been implemented in jurisdictions across the country where they have functionally ended homelessness and so where is this so, I mean, like, Bakersfield is one. I think that's, uh, I don't know if San Diego. And there, do they I mean, all call it Built for Zero? So it's, yeah, it's like almost, I was a trademark like lawyer a, a long time ago. So, oh, really? yeah, it's <laughs> kind of a, you know, just a random thing in my past. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and um, it's, yes, and so there, there, it is data-driven. There should be fidelity, what we call fidelity to the model. They need to do it right if they're going to do it. And what it entails is, it's a very simple concept. You understand how many people are living outside, you count them, and it's called a by name list, and you ask them, you know, what do you want for housing? What have been the barriers? And you get this information, you map it, you have data, we don't have any data. We do not know how many people are living outside in Portland right now or in Multnomah County as that's, a whole. That's so wrong. It's horrifying. So no one in the state, city, metro, or county no. has an answer to that? No. Okay. They act like you might hear about the point in time count. Yeah, but everybody is, also agrees that that's an inaccurate. It's it's beyond inaccurate. It is a... it is. And it, then when you say, well, why don't you do an accurate one? They go, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I wish they said that, they, but they're like, no, we can't. We're doing it right right now. Um, is is generally what doing what right? They're I, not even keeping track. They're not counting. Or they say it's not it. It's not 
necessary, that the information we have is enough to guide. We just know we need a lot of stuff. And what we have is good enough to guide where we go with our resources. So getting, I do want to, it's really important to understand Built for Zero. Yeah, please tell this us. This is something that I did work this. to get adopted. Um, so but, you, but you were stymied. Is that what happened? You said you worked to get it adopted? And it was finally adopted. Oh, it, it has been adopted. It's this been is something adopted. that you did. Yes. How did you do it, given all the obstacles that you have faced as a commissioner? It, it was actually on a home for everyone before the chair disbanded it. Um, a home for everyone was this group of, you know, there was an executive committee that had myself, uh, the mayor, the chair. Um, it was the housing bureau director, so it had been Chloe U. Daly. It was difficult to get things done at all for a while. Um, but then Dan Ryan came on board and actually was um, pushing for Built for Zero from day one. And he was the housing authority, um, the Portland Housing Bureau commissioner. And so he had authority there. And we started to get people on the executive board who were in agreement with this sort of data, like we actually need data. We need a strategy, we need a plan and a goal. And we, Dan and I together, we brought it, Dan proposed it at the Home for Everyone executive board and we voted it in. And then That's there was- a, Congratulations. That's it's a huge, That's it's a huge. Deal. Except then there was like all the delay of, you know, it was stalled. Um, there wasn't really anything dedicated to it. They kept saying, oh, we need to get an agreement in place. Like there was a lot of stalling. Finally, they did a board briefing for us. They kept saying, oh, we'll do a briefing when we're ready because I would ask for information. And, you know, finally they did one. And so I found out what was happening. And I'm like, that's not built for zero. That is not fidelity to the model. This is not what we should be doing. And since that, that was like in June, I think, and, or May. Since then, I've just been asking questions of, okay, what are we doing now? What are we doing now? And getting nothing in response okay and um, that's why we look around and there's still bodies splayed out in the in the gutter because we just haven't been able to move this program along so if you're chair what will well, change so two things what what's important about the program you start with the number of people who are living outside and so you actually have a number then you have a goal right now we don't have a goal we say we want zero people living outside Okay, then you build based on the information you actually have. You take your $250 million that we have in our Joint Office of Homeless Services and you, in, you make a plan. You invest it in the things we need to get people off the streets and into the places they need to be. That's why it's called Built for Zero. Basically, it is a data-driven, it's data-driven, it is a plan with a definable goal, and then it is that showing with the with the dashboard we talked about earlier, showing right, how we're like using our money, what we're buying. Yep. So somebody could go again. Somebody yep. could just go to a website oh, where and are find we out on that? what's going on with mm -hmm. that. Oh, we started with ten thousand people living outside. Now there's eighty two hundred. Oh, okay, and we spent. A hundred million, you know, whatever it is, you can 
go see it. It's straightforward. That's it. So as chair, it would be one of my top priorities to get built for zero done right. And it's not, it's not rocket science. Um, there's, it's common sense. Like this is one of those common sense solutions that we need to do. And you were talking about how there was a committee and it was hard to move things along. Once you're chair, how does that change? The, the chair does have the executive authority to, like the chair right now directs the director of the Joint Office of Homeless Services what to do with Built for Zero. So and you so can just start doing things. You could just start doing things. <laughs> so you don't even need to have a meeting about this. No. No more meetings. I feel like saying no more meetings. We have had so many meetings. Yeah, especially no Zoom meetings. Oh, I, <laughs> I'm trying to convince my... I'm on my neighborhood board and I'm trying to convince them no more Zoom meetings. I need to connect to everybody and I cannot persuade over Zoom. It's just so ineffective. I don't believe you. I believe you could persuade over Zoom, just well, seeing you here. But um, you to say, but you're sitting across from me face that's to true. face. That's true. We are in person. So. That, that is very kind of you to say. Okay, what right. else do we need to know about Bill for Zero? I think those are the those are the key things that it and it is person centered it is you know the beauty of it is that it actually is connecting with people if they were in some of these sites you know where to find them you talk to them and say what do you need so we're not just building random supportive housing that we don't even know who is going to move into it or what their needs are you're you're finding out how many people do need substance use treatment and wraparound services? How many do need to just get some, you know, light employment training or whatever it is? And then you're investing your money wisely. Right now, we're just uh, just kind of throwing everything at the kitchen sink, saying we just need infinite supportive housing and affordable housing, and then everything will be fine. But we aren't well, we aren't accounting for where the money's going. We don't know where people are even coming for, and we're not, we're not showing our work. Well, and maybe we can give access to these services, but one of my biggest questions is, mm -hmm. okay, I love court care. I love that for mental health. When 10 got rid of drug court, mm -hmm. if I'm on fentanyl, if I'm on something like opioids, which takes... My understanding it from Kevin, who's a Dahlgren, who's a licensed drug and alcohol counselor and various people I've talked to about this, it can take like eight times in rehab to get off of opioids. And that's if you have the wherewithal to do that. Yeah. And your brain's already been, you know this, you're an MD. Your brain's already been hijacked by this. Yes. And your body is screaming for you to get your drugs every day, and if you don't get them, you're gonna be in a literally a world of hurt, mentally, physically. I mean, I get it. I get why these people do not wanna get off of it. I get why these people are grabbing the catalytic converters and selling them for money. They have got right. to get well. They're in hell mm -hmm. when they don't have their drugs. And so they've got access to services, but I mean, are you going to be building, here's the other thing, are you going to be building like detox and rehabs? Because they just did a thing, I think it was KGW, about how we only have like two detox or rehab clinics because all this darn OHA money from <laughs> Measure 110 is for needle exchanges and cookers. 
and um, not for detoxes or rehab. So can Multnomah County build a, a rehabilitation or a detox facility? Well, that's one of the, what is, that is one of the most um, problematic things is, so compelling or incentivizing addiction treatment it, at this point is possible in theory, but in reality, it's virtually impossible. Yeah, and it is because right. few treatment, op- there, there's like so few treatment options. And even of the ones there are, virtually none do um, dual diagnosis treatment or co-occurring disorder treatment. So if you have a mental illness and an addiction issue, the mental health places don't want you and the addiction places won't take you. Right. And we need the places that do both. So that's where we need to be focusing resources. But we, we don't even, we're not even getting them from the state at all yet. Um, and Can so, you draw from your general, I mean, it may not be enough money, but can you draw from your general fund or do a bond? Like y'all did all these housing well, bonds. Can so we do the, a bond for this? So how many people, honestly, how many people do you think would support a bond given where, like, I, we could so do a measure to support treatment, which actually we should be using some of the supportive housing services money, but that's another yeah, conversation. We should. Yeah, we should. And so we could use that, but... And there's a lot honestly, of that. Honestly, I... There's a lot I, of that. Yeah. But I honestly, I, I don't think people... Rightfully, people don't trust that we're going to... We need to show that we're doing something before we put out another yeah, no, measure. Agree. This might be four or, years or down bonds. the road. Yeah, no, I agree. So if you get, here's a question. If you get into chair position, yeah. then somebody has to run for your position? No, no. We have, well, we have designees, unlike at the city. So I have someone designated for my seat. Her name is Cynthia Castro. She's brilliant. She's actually my chief of staff. So she is very aligned on my work with my work and um she worked at the city for 12 years i think so she what's wonderful about her so many things but she knows the city deeply and she has just been able to make so many connections just because of that cross-pollination so she is super smart she's um aligned with my stuff understands my priorities and what they would be as chair she will step in immediately into the job. So you become chair, Cynthia becomes commissioner Correct. in your current seat. Yes. And um, until the next election cycle. So Okay, and then do you get four do you get yeah. two terms two as terms. chair two even terms though you've chair. been a commissioner? Correct. Okay. okay. Yep. So maybe this is something to visit in your second term or something. Um, although y'all have so many billions floating around, it's yes. hard to believe that <laughs> we couldn't take some of the money we do have and put it into something that actually well, does work. That's, I mean, that's what I think we need to be doing is people say, do we need more money for X, Y, or Z? And I would say, no. I don't know do that we not. do. But the thing is, we don't even know how to measure. No, that's right. We need our systems to work. And that gets to the question of like what I would want to see as chair happen. It is the first thing is, you know, measurable decrease people living outside on our street. People starting to get access to the treatment and all the stuff that they need. And it will be visible and it will be noticeable by people living in our county. The other thing is more of a, a system. Like I'm not 
I did not go into politics. It's like I kind of went into politics even though I'm kind of anti-politics in many ways. It's because it's where I felt I needed to go to be able to accomplish my passion, the work I'm passionate about, and where I felt like I could actually make a difference in these systems that I saw that were so dysfunctional. So my, my goal, I want to be chair because I can change those systems and put things in place that will then live on as functional systems for whoever comes next. And I, I do not want to run for any higher office ever. I want, this is like the work that I was meant to do. And I, I feel like there's so much potential. And, um, and so that's, that's really what I, what I'm looking for. So, um, Multnomah County is in charge of courts, parole, probation, things like that. Mm -hmm. The PPV listeners are frustrated because they're being told by Multnomah County judges to ticket people with felony warrants. And they ticket them. And these people, and they're dealing with them. I mean, I went on a ride along. They're they're dealing with these people all night. 90%, you know, there's 10% that goes to gang violence. There's always a shooting every single night somewhere that has to do with gang violence or there's homeless people shooting each other. Um, But this dovetails on what I was about to say, which is 90% of these police officers' time is spent running around with homeless people that really should be in jail, like should not be running around. Um, So what, if anything, I mean, we all know about the Adon murder, right? This, uh, he killed his wife and he was bailed out by a community Mm -hmm. fund. And and Mm -hmm. I know that y'all have nothing to do with the community Mm -hmm. fund. Nobody does. That's a private entity. But what do we do? Can Multnomah County do anything in terms of getting these people that we know have person felonies in their history off the streets and freeing up these cops to deal with homicides and and other things? That's a big... That's a big systems question um, and I mentioned I, I love systems and figuring out how the things how these pieces fit together right now we don't have any of the pieces fitting together no we don't and before we are able to just you know get people off the streets for whatever reason or address one element in like it's completely dysfunctional bunch of systems, we do need to get them at least coordinated and aligned. That's work that I have done and I continue to do. And as chair, I could actually go into hyperdrive and get that work, um, be effective in a lot of that connection. So um, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about even the concept of maybe merging uh, the police bureau with the sheriff's office. And I, I proposed having that conversation, um, getting the evidence, the pros, the cons, and understanding it at least, because in my mind, there seem to be real reasons to do it. Uh, what The main one is, like you said, the county has oversight over virtually all aspects of the criminal justice system. 
except law enforcement. So we have the jails, the sheriff, the parole probation, we have the DA, all of it, but we don't have law enforcement in the city. Yeah, Wheeler's got PPB, you don't. Exactly. And so it's hard to create a holistic functional system when that one, that crucial piece is missing. Like we could say, here are the ways we could do treatment and jail and put all the pieces together. But if law, if law enforcement isn't at the table, we can't. And that's there's right. a whole separate right. funding mechanism. So that's why I think we should, at the very least, have the conversation because I, I worked on the, the Community Oversight Advisory Board with some just incredible police officers who, um, they were brilliant. And I, I saw what they were facing every single day and I admire them and respect them so much. And, you know, I think they want to do their jobs. They want to have the public be safe. They want to be safe. Um, and they're not given the tools. But I, I think that part of it has to do with just kind of a dysfunctional system. And um, I would love to use my power as chair to make that work. That's, I mean, the fact that you're interested in it at all thrills me. Because mm -hmm. I'm certainly not hearing one whit of interest from anybody. It's just, oh, what a tragedy. Uh, it's too bad he was bailed out. And then he, Ugh. even though he had count after count of strangulation, went back to his wife. Like, it's just... I mean, he had every, every single thing. I mean, that gets into domestic violence, which is in the purview of the county. Um, and we have domestic violence services. And what are we doing not just to change our, you know, change our systems and provide individual services, but advocate at the state. If it's a state issue that for whatever reason this person could not be held, that needs to be changed. Like we need to figure out how to change that. And, you know, as chair, you really have the bully pulpit. You have the opportunity to to advocate in a meaningful way at the at the le at the state level um, and that is absolutely something I would do I I can't even tell you how I mean I probably everyone listening um, was also as disturbed as I was but I, that one just just really really got to me that and the Keffer white thing with this mm. homeless guy who beat an 83 oh. year old to death so um, I I know him. I knew him. He, my Donald? Mom, yeah. My mother-in-law. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Was she in his building? My mother-in-law was at Terwilliger Plaza. Okay, my, friend, my friend's Maine. mom is there. Yeah. yeah. And he was one of the first people that we met when she moved in, and we were having lunch. And I still remember. I'm so sorry. Loveliest, just loveliest man he was t he did incredible work he was a professor and he was a professor he'd lived in japan working on peace after hiroshima like he he was just an incredible human being and that um so yes i knew him wow, personally so and yeah that must have been oh. just oh. devastating news it's and again it. running around with felonies yes yeah. yes multiple you know yes exactly Multiple uh, crimes being ticketed. 
Um, I know we got to wrap this up. Sharon, tell us what we need to know. What do we need to know? Where do we donate? Uh, do you do house parties? Uh, oh, my gosh. Yes. Starting backwards. Um, well, I guess just to finish with, um, with the real this race matters. I, I just love having the opportunity to talk to you and have you ask the real questions and have time to give the real answers because in these you know so-called debates or forums or whatever, you have 30 seconds or a minute to talk about these major issues. And so all you can do or you know it's the talking points. I try to make my right. talking points real. Um, my opponents are the same as the current chairs we've discussed, but it, it's hard to convey. And so I just appreciate you taking this time and anyone who's listening for listening. Um, any questions, you can contact me directly, Sharon at votesharon.com. Um, this race is crucially important uh, and it will affect people's lives when they walk out their doors and um, and people need to know that and that you do have a choice. Bottom line is status quo, four more years of the same talking points and the same results or action, accountability plans from someone who does this work on the front lines and who speaks the truth. So. Um, there are $500 per individual campaign contribution limits in this race, and um, that makes it hard to raise the money needed to get a message out to you know a county of over 800. Because those are low. Those are very low. And That's, then is, is it a thousand for couples? So yeah, it would. Um, they will. They could do a thousand for couples, but. They will. They will question it. It needs to be five hundred. I mean, it's it's really. I got it. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so I could not write you a thousand dollar check. Correct. I would have to write you a five hundred dollar check, and then Scott would have to write you a five hundred dollar check. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Which would be wonderful um, if you would do that. But and we need to remember that because that's yeah. not true in city council. So everybody who right. thinks you can just send her or get on the website and do a thousand bucks. Um, don't you do it and then get your spouse to sit down and do it. Or you're frankly, you need all your adult children to do it as well. Yeah. It, it really, in this race, it really matters because I firmly believe, um, I mean, I'm definitely the right candidate. I have the best message and we just need to get that message out. That's what needs to be done. So I house parties are great, whether they're fundraising, which is excellent, or just, you know, meet and greets and coffees to connect with people and answer questions and meet neighbors and friends and work colleagues, brown bag lunches, you know, bring those back. And uh, um, people just connecting with their networks and saying, hey, you know, this race is important. Sending this out to 10 people you know even. Um, you know, you should vote for Sharon. Getting other people to contribute to the campaign. Put a put a yard sign in your yard would be fantastic. Where do we get a yard sign? So if you go to votesharon.com, there's you can you know, you can click to donate, you can click to volunteer, you can click to get a yard sign. Okay, there's, great. Okay. That's seamless. Yep. And and so we can do all that on your website. Yep, all that and more. <laughs> okay, and what else do we need to know? Anything else? Do you have any events coming up or anything that we could attend? 
I will get those. Do you? I don't know if you send things out of, with, like put resources. Yeah. Along yeah. With, so I have show notes, and I can do links and. Great. I'll we'll get some stuff to you. Okay, great. I, I, we have do. a lot Please of stuff do. happening, but um, I don't have it at my fingertips. Okay, that'd be great. Yeah, send. Uh, Vicky will send it to me, and then I can get that out. And are you doing anything? Uh, we got a lot of people who are plugged in with Portland Party. Are you doing anything with them or any yes. of their events? Yes, definitely. I'll okay. be showing up at their events. And Okay, uh, great. So yeah. if they go to Portland Party website, look for Sharon when she's showing up, and then you can do a meet and greet and ask probably ask some questions, you think? Absolutely. I love, I love talking about this stuff, and I would love to answer questions that people have. Well, thank you for coming on. I've loved talking to you, and I had such a good time, and I um, it, I just think it's really important that we educate everybody. So uh, share this episode with everybody you know so that people understand why Multnomah County Chair Race is so important, number one. And, you know, they don't, they don't have to be... Uh, they can be in whoever's camp, but they need to understand right. why the race is important. And then they can start looking at the candidates and evaluating the candidates. I think a lot of people just forget about the Multnomah County race, and they're just so focused on city. Yep. And and this and is governor. the race that will make make the difference in what you see. Right. Day. If you're tired of seeing bodies splayed out in the gutter, yeah. vote for Sharon Myron. Yep. It's very simple. And the, uh, the other thing I think is really important about this race is that it's nonpartisan. Like, I think I, my opponent is, is running like it's a partisan sort of race with the establishment um, kind of mentality. Totally. And, and for me, I just am so uh, de- dedicated to the work. This is about doing the work. And doing it the right way. It is nonpartisan, which I am grateful for, and it's for a reason. So, it's it's looking at, um, you know, I, I hear my opponent say, you know, she's so collaborative and all this, uh, and and she is collaborative with a very um, with one sector of our very broad community here. And um, I, what I love is. It's like in the ER, we see all comers, and um, I engage with everyone who's impacted and cares about our, our community here. So really what you're saying is you have a big tent. Big tent. Campaign and a big tent um, base that you're appealing to, and you don't have this quote-unquote um, base in a box where <laughs> they have to agree with some kind of ideology uh, to be on board with you. You're exactly. because you're really embracing the idea of this nonpartisan race and appealing to. I mean, in, Port- in Portland, it's really just a spectrum of left, far left, and right. centrist left. But I, but you know, you're really Common appealing to everybody. And yeah. Well, I like the words common sense. Sharon, thanks so much for coming in. Vote Sharon Myron. Go to her website. (laughs) Donate and um, make sure you sign up to volunteer. Get a sign. Get clued in with Portland Party. Figure out what event she's going to be at. And you can meet her. Maybe she'll even let you take a selfie with her or something. So uh, stay tuned and um, make sure to vote for the Multnomah County Chair Race in November. Thank you, Sharon Myron. Oh, my gosh. Thank you.